Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of our podcast series, Getting to Better Together, sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership at the University of the Sunshine Coast and supported by Noosa Radio FM 101.3. And I'm your host, Richard Borden. Before proceeding, I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Every so often, a small beam of light of good news emerges from within the pall of gloom, which seems to continue to hang over us in Australia at the moment, as in so much of the rest of the world. News of some initiative or innovation literally sparks optimism at a time when everything else seems to be going backwards or downwards. Over past episodes, we've explored many of these pressing issues of the day, and most especially the changing climate of the planet and the related global warming. We've talked about its key features and about the appeals by the IPCC and other international and national bodies for policy, strategy, behaviour to change our reliance particularly on fossil fuel. Energy and transport are two particular areas where very significant changes are possible through technological innovation. My guest today is at the heart of a good news story in Australia that's rising precisely to this challenge. Greg McGarvey is the Managing Director of the Australian Clean Energy Electric Vehicle Group, ACE, or ACE EV, which is providing what he refers to as a door opener for energy and transport. Welcome, Greg, and thanks so much for sparing time in the midst of your incredibly busy schedule. Thanks, Richard, for taking the effort to have a chat. Let me uh, start by asking you about your vision for, for ACE and EV and, and what's the initiative all about uh, in terms of being a door opener? Well, look, it's quite simply, uh, what we're developing up is an environmental organisation. We're producing a vehicle that's less polluting, doesn't steal our oxygen uh, and lasts a long time. Mm-hmm. And our goal, or my goal, is this is the last uh, organisation I'll be setting up and I want to leave a legacy to my grandchildren, which includes innovation, advanced technology, advanced manufacturing, and a new new suite of jobs tied around energy management, software, and cheap transport. Fantastic. That's a, a broad vision and a magnificent one. What, uh, what happened before to bring you to this? Well, I was a marine biologist, and uh, I've always been involved with... Um, various environmental groups and set up a number of organisations here in Australia and internationally. And um, we had an organisation with my business partner, Will, that was called Get Green. It was an energy management company. Uh, Mm -hmm. We purposely called it Get Green. And we'd go in and see uh, commercial operators, high rise banks and say that, um, listen, we can reduce your power bills. And Mm We did. I mean, some of the high-rise in Melbourne, we took their power bill down 90% just by changing wow. the way they did their lighting and other things. That was, that was, that was a foundation, I guess, and the next mm-hmm. step was uh, solar farm development, and mm-hmm. it's during that development we talked with one of the development partners about our interest in EVs, and he then introduced us to really what's the underpinning success of this whole operation, Dr Charles Kung out of Taiwan and Gerhard Kerr out of Stuttgart in Germany. Uh, they're now both directors of the Australian company. We don't get dictated to by Detroit or anywhere else. We dictate ourselves. <laughs> right. And how did you hear of them? Oh, well, they were introduced by a uh, development partner with the solar farm, uh, oh, yeah. introduced Charles, and he's a bit suspicious of us at the start because I'm a right. marine, marine biologist and 
Right. And my business partner's an economist and a journalist, but right. uh, we've established a great relationship now. And mm -hmm. what's happened, of course, they've joined the company. They've now given us their IP for the last 22 years. I guess we're the only vehicle company that can claim to have come from a watch. You're probably the same vintage as me, so you would remember the swatch that was built by Ernst Tomke. Indeed I do, yes. Revolutionised. Upset the Swiss no end. Well, it didn't. It saved the Swiss watch industry. But yes, it did upset the traditional watchmakers. Right. Uh, but then after that, they thought, well, can make a watch out of plastic. Let's try a car. And that's where the mm. first vehicle started. Okay. So the basis of the vehicle at the moment is what? It's, it's a non-steel vehicle. It's a, it's a, a look, um, Gerhardt's skills are that he's a recognisably the world leader in long fibre composite moulding technology. And what it means is that we can build a vehicle for one third the energy footprint and it's up to 50% lighter than existing vehicles. And it's probably a bit scary for most, but those of you that fly in the uh, Dreamliner, uh, it's a plastic plane basically glued together and uh, our vehicle's much the same. You can almost say it's Tupperware on wheels, but it's a bit right. smarter than that. <laughs> uh, reading some of your, your material, well, what's MEMS? What does that mean? Ah, uh, yeah, that's our... Look, we, we got a federal government grant for $5 million. Uh, mm. It was very unusual. Um, mm. We got it mainly because of the advocacy of Senator Rex Patrick, a South Australian senator. He likes EVs. And um, uh, I rang his office. I heard about him and... They said, yeah, Greg, we've been tracking you. We think it's great. We think uh -huh. maybe, maybe if we work hard, we might be able to get you $5 million to get you um, developed. And so we ended up with the five mil and uh, it was issued under Australia's obligation to the Paris Agreement and also to set up EV manufacturing in Australia, which is a long straw because only $5 million, also to develop up our energy management device. And that's the, what you're asking about. What we've got, it's a global first. It's a very clever device. Uh, it's white label. It'll go into any EV. It'll go into any home storage mm -hmm. uh, once it's fully productized. Uh, we demonstrated it out of our French lab last year. Mm -hmm. And in that demonstration, we showed that it could provide grid services. It could run a house. It could charge off the house if you've got solar. And we're a bit cheeky, but we charged a BMW off our vehicle as well. So it can charge vehicle <laughs> to vehicle. Down the track, when it's fully productized and developed, we've still got to spend more money, it'll have the capability of what we call as an energy wallet. And in effect, um, you can trade energy. So if you've got home solar, you're charging a vehicle off that, you can be providing grid services later on. Now, there will have to be some real changes. And I think um, there's an appetite in Australia with the Australian Energy Market Commission and others to look very carefully at how electric vehicles with all their batteries can bring services to the grid and provide greater stability and lower pricing. I guess one of the huge advantages of, of not being steel is that the actual cost of manufacture in terms of carbon footprint is, is relatively reduced, in fact, significantly reduced. It is, and we've taken it a step further. Uh, we're looking at cradle to grave with the vehicle. We've got a research agreement with the uh, University of Queensland in their bioengineering and nanotechnology centre. Wow. And the focus there is to produce plastics from natural materials. And one of the leaders in there, she's very clever, uh, Dr. Nazim, she um, already produced plastics from Spinifex grass. So we're looking at some quite different ways of producing plastic, and they're all recyclable. 
So it's, it's really coming at a totally different concept of, of synthesis of all sorts of different ideas rather than just one idea. Yeah, and look, in reality, um, everyone thinks we're building vehicles, but we're not. We're actually energy, we're setting up an energy management system right. with some clever software. We're just fortunate we've got something to move that energy around very inexpensively and move people around inexpensively. And talking about cost of operations, uh, I'm driving down to Brisbane tonight in my EV and I can do seven trips between Brisbane and Harvey Bay. Uh, and my partner in Alexis does one and it costs the same. And I guess to illustrate it, I drove it up from Melbourne uh, during the floods. Mm -hmm. 2,000 kilometres cost me $90 using commercial charges. Wow. Do you see a real genuine transformation? I mean, is this going to change with this and, and similar technologies and similar approaches? Is this going to change the, the whole um, transport business in Australia? Are we likely to change? Of course it is. Um, you know, right. <laughs> no, no, the reality is at the moment we depend on our transport system and our whole economy depends on importing oil or fossil yeah, fuel. Yeah. And we don't have any flagships now, so we've got no control over fossil fuel coming into the country. No. It only needs some bad actor to say, ah, oh, Australia, I think I can stop your operations and pay the ships to take the oil somewhere else. And mm -hmm. uh, we're exposed. Mm -hmm. You saw what happened just with the, the pandemic and a few floods, you know, the interruption yeah, to power yeah. supplies. And, and the really scary bit about it is that... Um, Everyone talks about maybe 21 days of fuel security. Uh, it's not, in fact. It's, it's much less than that. When they count yeah. our, our reserve fuel, it's ships at sea coming to Australia. So then the big pivot is, and even Jason Falinski, who got voted out during the election, he said, you know, climate change is important, but really the most important thing for Australia is to pivot to electric vehicles so we have total transport independence of having to import fossil fuel. It's interesting. I, I don't know why reading your material triggered it, but back in 1964, which was the year I got married, Donald Horne uh, published his book. And I went back to read, read it in terms of the, the, the lucky country and the irony in, in, in that and saying that we were lucky not just because we've got lots of minerals and therefore whatever happened, uh, we could dig something out of the ground. But more importantly, we were lucky because we had imported derived institutions like governments and, and all the sort of services that, that go with with uh, law and order and, and, and so on. And then he wrote again in 1976 where he said that people have misunderstood uh, the fact that what he meant by the lucky country was not just because we've got these minerals and things, but because of our situations. Now, you know, I think about the end of democracy in the United States and the threatens in Britain because of Brexit and so on, war in Europe and so on. And I agree with you entirely that Australia seems to be so vulnerable that whatever we do, I mean, all our exports are going one direction, more or less. Uh, and so what you're really presenting is genuinely a revolution, isn't it? Well, I hope so. And it, I mean, it, it just needs a little bit of common sense, really. I mean, we've got Australia. We've got a nuclear reactor sitting there in the sky. It's free. All we have to do is be clever about how we capture the energy from it. That nuclear reactor, the sun, it produces enough energy and bathes the earth in enough energy in one day that if you use that energy in all the industry and everything that's running now, it would last 30 years. So we're not capturing much at all. Let me take another statement that I've read here where it says, transforming e-vehicles into mobile power plants. I'm not an engineer. And I don't quite understand what that means. You've got a mobile phone. 
Sometimes you take a battery perhaps to top it up. In effect, this vehicle is just a bigger version of the mobile phone with wheels on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a tradie, uh, you can run a worksite off your vehicle for a day without too much drama at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, um, say, you're at home and your power's out, you can run your house off the vehicle for three days. And that's oh, just a small wow. vehicle. That's extraordinary. You just have to be you know, a little bit frugal with the way you use your energy. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, the average house is was around 10 kilowatt hours a day of energy usage. Your batteries on the vehicle, the standard vehicle, are 30 kilowatt hours. So. I mean, one of the other parts of the of the integrated story, or lack thereof, it seems to me, is that uh, I'm up here in Queensland like you, and, and the lack of insulation in these houses means that a drop in temperature of just two or three degrees uh, seems freezing cold. Having lived uh, in Europe and the United States, I find this, again, a bit odd. We, we don't seem to build for energy efficiency. No, that's, that's correct. And we've been a bit lazy in that area. I mean, Kevin Rudd tried with the insulation of houses yeah. and that yeah. did have a big impact. People don't realise how much impact that had just insulating houses, stopping the heat loss you right. know, from the living area through the ceiling. But yeah. our houses are built badly. And yeah. the, everyone carries about on about the cost of energy. The mm. best thing to do is not use energy, then it costs yeah. you nothing. And the less that's, energy you use, the better. And that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been in houses in Victoria, you know, it's freezing outside. The whole house, so well insulated and set up that it's got one potbelly stove heating the whole house. But the sad thing about the, the, Rudd, uh, the Rudd initiative was how it was politicised, wasn't it? And that was such a tragedy. And I was thinking again of Donald Horne and thinking about why is it we do that? I mean, it's called the tall poppy syndrome, I guess, in some ways. But it's always that whenever we have an innovation or something that's really clever, it isn't as if we all went along and said, oh, that's a good idea, let's invest in that, rather than buying another house as a commodity. Well, I think the most damaging person in Australian politics has been Tony Abbott, you know, with what he did. And it was just attack, attack, attack. No sense yeah. behind it. You know, our yeah. communication system in Australia is a disgrace and the communication yeah. and transport are critical for uh, a good, effect, effective, efficient economy. And yeah. uh, there's just let's hope that the current government, the new government, can start to turn that around. But there's a lot of pressure groups and other interests out there that can tear the heart out of some good good efforts and good operations. I uh, pre-COVID, I travelled a lot internationally, and and was always amazed when I came back to Australia at how incredibly slow our internet access was, and I could never actually get a clear explanation of why that was so. <laughs> Well, it's politics. Well, yeah, I'd realise that. <laughs> but what's it stopping? Why, what is it stopping? Why, why is politics intervening in such a way? Oh, because there's just uh, there are different interest groups there and uh, some of the interest groups are so shallow-minded that they think that if one party introduces it, well, it mustn't be any good and they'll, mm. they'll cut it down. I mean, that was, that was Abbott's instruction to Turnbull, you know? Yeah. Chop the guts out of the uh, NBN can change right. it. And right. it's ended up more expensive now with a poorer service. I mean, I get so frustrated. You know, when I, I travel between um, you know, Harvey Bay and Brisbane, and most of the time I'm in dead zone, so I can't do any business at all. That's extraordinary, isn't it, in Australia? God. I've worked a lot in uh, East Africa, for instance, and you're rarely without it. It's just amazing. Yeah. There's a few eye-openers in other countries. I mean, I've been in Taiwan a number of times and the service there is just brilliant and it's so inexpensive compared to Australia. 
You've been uh, an innovator all your life, I guess. I've had a go at a few different things, and um, I think this one's probably, hopefully, if everything works out as we expect, it'll be something that'll be good for Australia. Or I, I want it good for my grandchildren in particular, because sure. if we don't make sure. changes now, uh, you know, I've seen it just in marine with the marine biology. You yeah. know, uh, 50 years ago, I studied marine at James Cook. Wow. Then they were talking about the indicators showing up in the ocean with CO2 being absorbed, changing the acidity levels of the ocean. Tiny amounts, but it affects living organisms there and changes you know, the whole, the whole um, biosphere in the ocean. And it's a biosphere we've got to be careful with. And I guess I get on my uh, platform a little bit, but you shrink the globe, our Earth, down to the size of a basketball, that ocean is a cup full of water. That ocean, that ocean, that cup full of water provides 70% of our oxygen provides the air conditioner for the earth and provides food and um, you know we've just got to be so careful with what we do with it it's been actually protecting us from climate change because it's been absorbing so much of the co2 i mean the, the, the word you've used there i think is a word that i find so lacking so often in debates and discussions in australia about anything and that's care the whole notion that we should care for the ocean we should care for other species um, on the planet care for other people and so on and it doesn't seem to be apparent in our character, except when there are emergencies, in which case Australians are quite remarkable in the way they all group together, whether it's fire or flood or whatever. No, you're true. And I think it's a little bit to do with um, you know, the original systems that developed in our communities and you know, way, uh, the way we group things, the way we do politics. But the caring side of it is it's, it's essential for success and, mm. and understanding and being able to discuss things rationally and uh, yeah. Yeah, not live your life on um, false facts and uh, you know, all the other, other damaging things that have got groups you know, raging, particularly in the yeah. States, against right. uh, the authorities because they think they're being misled. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's absolutely bizarre. Greg, it's been a delight hearing, uh, hearing your story and hearing of the optimism that you hold. And let's hope that your, your vision makes reality. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Not a worry, Richard. You have a good day and thanks for your time. Thank you, you too. And thank you all for listening. And I look forward to our next episode. Till then, goodbye.